So last week, um, I had a special opportunity to spend time with my parents. They live in Korea, but they came to the States for about 10 days. It was the first time they actually saw my, my daughter, Irene. Uh, Irene is two, but because of COVID, they weren't able to, to visit and, and see Irene. So we had a great time. And one thing that you realize when you, you're getting uh, older, you realize that the conversations that you have with your parents, they change. Um, in the past, uh, a lot of the conversations revolve around you, uh, but when you have kids, you realize how much hard work they put into your lives, how much sacrifice they made for you. So I remember we were just talking um, over the, the table, and we were going back uh, to my childhood. I was sharing how, how I have these memories about my childhood, and my mom opens up. She says, you know, um, that time when you were young, that was really tough for me. Because my dad was a full-time student for a long time, and so we didn't have stable income. And so my mom, what she would do is, uh, she has three kids, and so I'm the middle child. She would uh, send her kids to someone else, uh, and then uh, she would babysit uh, throughout the day uh, until dad returns. And then uh, at night, she would do her thing. Uh, but uh, it's, it was a way to support the family. Another memory that she shared was that she, she remembers that whenever we dined out at uh, a restaurant or fast food, fast food place, uh, drinks were not an option. Like, you don't get drinks. Uh, or on special occasions, if it's your birthday or uh, on a special occasion, if you do get a drink, you have multiple straws in that drink because you're drinking with your brother and your sister. And so um, these memories were, like, very new to me. Like, cause, and I shared with her. Mom, now that I'm older, I appreciate all that you have done for me. I have no idea how you raised three kids. Um, I'm struggling with two right now. But one thing I said was this. I know, like, for you, that time period uh, when, when we were young, that you feel really bad, that you couldn't provide much for us, you, you were struggling financially. But all I remember from my childhood is that I was a happy baby, that I was a happy child, uh, I have great memories. Uh, I still remember the playground and, and the people that I was with. And, and I shared that, yeah, really all that I remember um, is just good things. And I think it's not just because, you know, I'm this incredible person, but children have no problem finding joy. No problem finding joy. They can find joy in the smallest things. You just be around children, and they will laugh about the smallest thing. You make a funny face, they will laugh. You do, do something silly, they, they will laugh. You give a piece of candy to a child, you're, you're the best friend forever, right? Like they, they, they love and appreciate just these small things. They know how to be joyful. And that's why if you came to Bethlehem night yesterday, you know that uh, the main uh, people on the stage were children, right? We don't put a whole lot of adults up there. The, the ones who went up are our best, right? Because if you put a group of adults on the stage, and have them sing and dance for Christmas, it's going to be pretty depressing, right? Children, like, you don't have, you, you can just stand there. The little ones, they just stand there, right, listening to music. And everyone's like, oh, that's so great. And kids are just smiling. You feel the joy. Uh, there was this one group. Uh, I think it's called Seomnara in Korean. Uh, it's a unique group because there's a mix of children and youth, and from toddlers all the way to teenagers. And you can kind of tell, okay, the level of joy that each life stage has, right? The first row, these toddlers, they are like enjoying the stage. They are dancing uh, to the music. And then you have these children. They're rapping. They're like they're doing all these different things. And then you have the youth back there. And you can tell that they don't want to be up there. Like, all right. 
they were forced to be up there. They're representing, like, and they can barely raise their hands. I'm like, I'm thankful that you guys are up there, seriously. But if you put an adult up there, like, they, they wouldn't do anything, right? They wouldn't do anything. That's why we either put our very best on the stage or we try to dim the lights so that not many people can recognize what we're, what we're doing. Um, children have no issue finding joy, but the older and older you get, it is harder and harder to find joy. Would you agree with that? I remember when I was young, I didn't worry about money. Um, even though our family did not have much, that was not something that, that I was worried about. Uh, but one thing I realized, the older you get, the reason why there is less joy in your life is because of awareness, right? The more and more you become aware of all the problems in life, all the challenges that you're going to face, uh, life becomes joyless. I, I remember like playing on the streets, like I wasn't aware of danger. And so I was just a happy kid. Like, you know, I, I just high five strangers, but now I'm more aware of the danger around um, our society and I re- recognize that anything could happen. And so like when I'm walking the streets, I'm, I'm kind of uh, watching out for strangers, especially with, when I'm with my kids. But children, they have no issue, you know, when it comes to enjoying the moment, their moment in life because they have less awareness. The more awareness you have, uh, the, the, the more aware you become with all the brokenness around you, all the problems inside of you, the sinfulness of your heart, life becomes very joyless. And today, on this Christmas Day, I simply want to talk about joy. Uh, joy that we don't have to simply produce uh, and force, uh, but something that resides in every believer's heart, the true joy of Christmas. In verse 10, the angels, uh, an angel appears to a group of shepherds, and this is what the angel says. Fear not. Stop being afraid. Stop being anxious. Don't worry. Look, with adults, right, like because there's so much anxiety and worries and, and because there's so little joy, you need to rely on either a person to find joy, substance to find joy. You need to parties to find joy but notice the bible says fear not stop being afraid stop worrying about your life for behold i bring you good news of great joy not just joy but great joy and the best part about this news is this that will be for all the people So this good news of great joy is not just something that was given to these group of shepherds that were on the field in the first century Judea, but this good news of great joy is given to all people, including you and me. And that's why this story is so relevant, because the news that you hear in this passage today is something that is given to us by God out of his grace, and it's available to us that we would believe in it, that we would center our lives around it. This good news of great joy is available for us today. And so I just want to give you two reasons why Christmas is such a joyous day. The story of Christmas reminds us, number one, of the sovereign rule of God, of the sovereign rule of God. What that means is it reminds us that God is in complete control, that he has ultimate authority, 
and his plans will never fail. The sovereign rule of God. Look at verse 1. It says, In those days, a decree went out from uh, Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And you, if you know your world history, you know that Caesar Augustus was the first emperor right, uh, of the Roman Empire. He was this well-respected ruler, the most powerful man at that time. Um, he was the one who had influence over nations after nations. And that's why it says when he sent out a decree, the whole world listened. And so you have this powerful political figure who is well-respected even till today. Octavius is another name that he goes by. And he is worshipped by other people, praised by other people. People even lift him up to the point that they believe that he is the son of God. People would claim that this is a savior that's going to make all things right. And what Luke does in his gospel is quite interesting. He just simply writes one line about Caesar Augustus. And he used this powerful political figure as a backdrop of Jesus' story. Like this powerful figure is simply a background for the story of Jesus. Luke is writing to Theophilus, who is a ruler of himself. He's a well-respected official figure, a Gentile person. And, and he's making a very bold claim. Not only is he not giving credit, uh, he's, he's, he's failing to give credit to Caesar, but he's saying that the true king, the true ruler, the real Savior of all is Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. That he's putting Caesar Augustus in his right place, and he's putting Jesus in his rightful place as well. Now, I, I love to play basketball. And one thing that you're going to realize if you, you love to play ball is that the older you get, you want to play horse. You, you don't want to play full court. Uh, like, when you're young, you love playing full court because you can run around, right? And then you, you, you know you hit, like, a, a wall when you say, okay, let's play half court. And then you really know you hit a wall when you begin to say, hey, let's just play horse around the world, right? That's when you know that, okay, this is good for my joints. I don't have to uh, run and, and be huffing and puffing. Like, this is good. Horse, if you're not familiar with this game, what it is is you're making a shot, and someone has to follow your shot. And, and you're supposed to do uh, trick shots, a shot that no one else can follow. But before you shoot, you have to call your shot. If you're going to bank the, the ball, you have to say, I'm going to bank it. If you're going to shoot it with your eyes closed, you have to say that you're going to shoot it with your eyes closed. In other words, you have to expose the plan. You're going to say, okay, this is my goal. This is the plan. And then you have to execute it. Did you know that God is so good at horse that he never misses a shot? Whatever he claims, whatever he comes up with, whenever he, whatever he says, this is what I'm going to do, he will do it. He will deliver. He never misses. You just think about the level of difficulty when it comes to delivering this shot of bringing Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior. Number one, he has to be born of, of a virgin, which is scientifically, biologically quite a challenge. And then he's supposed to come from the line of David. Now, this is quite interesting because if you're going to be born of a virgin, most likely it's going to be a single mom, but it says that he has to have the, come from the line of David, meaning Genealogy matters. So somehow that this, this, this Jesus, this Christ, has to still have 
the, the reputation of being born of the line of David. And that's accomplished through Joseph. And not only that, the Savior has to be born in Bethlehem, which is another challenge because Mary and Joseph right now, they are living in Lazarus, miles away from Bethlehem. In order to go to Bethlehem, not only is it a far distance, but it's an uphill. And Joseph, he needs to take his pregnant lady all the way to Bethlehem, either walking or on a donkey, right? And that's, that's a hard task. And so, so how is God going to accomplish this, this, this plan? How is he going to take a pregnant woman, a virgin who's pregnant with this, this, this baby, all the way from Lazarus to Bethlehem? He says, well, let me tweak some stuff in history. Let me use Caesar Augustus in a way that he would declare um, uh, a census that, that people would move because of this decree. And just like that, in order to get Mary to Bethlehem, he, he, he simply reshapes history. That Augustus, that he, he declares a, a count, and everyone has to report to their ancestral town, especially tax reasons. That, that was a big thing, making sure that everyone is registered on file so that they can pay their taxes and so that the Roman government can have control over these people. Now, Caesar Augustus thought that he was doing something for the Roman Empire. What he did not know was that he was actually doing something for the Lord. And in that way, unknowingly, God, he controlled Caesar Augustus, one of the most powerful rulers of history, to give birth to Jesus. And if this is how God operates, if his power is unfathomable, if his wisdom is surpassing, like you can't draw this up, honestly. And even if you draw this up, you can't execute this plan to this degree, it reminds us that God, he is in complete control even when things don't make complete sense. Even when you don't see the full picture that God is still working. What's happening to Mary and Joseph makes no sense if you just look at their life in a bubble. Here you have this poor teenage girl who's pregnant without being married you have this poor, poor teenage guy who has the responsibility to taking care of this, this girl. Not only does he have to help the girl to deliver a baby, but he has to take this girl all the way to Bethlehem. Doesn't even have a place to stay. And yet, by God's grace, all these things are happening. Why? Because God, he's working his plan even when we can't fully see. And a lot of times, what we need when we are in our bubble is that we need to see a greater reality. I said that awareness brings uh, greater um, uh, 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 robs your joy. Awareness, the more awareness that you have, that you have less joy because you're more aware of all the problems in life, I would argue that you need a greater awareness where you don't just see your problems and suffering in your life, but you see beyond and what God is doing. In the big picture, God was moving history to accomplish his salvation, salvation work, that he was moving pieces, emperors, to, to bring this baby so that this baby can be the savior of all. So the Christmas story reminds us that God, he is still sovereign, that he is still in charge, that he still got it. Even when we don't fully understand, like you can count on him. He can use many different ways 
to create his own way. Romans eleven thirteen says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So never underestimate what God can do in your life. And what I want to encourage you to do when it is really difficult to see what God is doing in your life is just pan out a little bit. Stop seeing your life just in the bubble of your life, but understand your life in the context of salvation history. Understand your calling in the context of God's greater plan to save the world, and that is going to bring light and purpose and meaning on a daily basis. So the Christmas story reminds us that God is still in charge, that he has his plan, and he's executing his plan, and he's going to ultimately rule and reign over all things, and that brings us joy. The second thing is this. The Christian story reminds us of God's saving grace. God's saving grace. Not just his sovereign rule, but his saving grace is what brings us joy. It says in verse 8, Now, in the same region, there were shepherds out of the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, this is something that we see over and over again in the Bible when people encounter God's holy presence, they drop. They fall on their face. They are afraid. They are terrified. And it's not because angels are ugly. It's not because angels are scary. What the Bible says is it wasn't just this angel, but it was the glory of the Lord shone around them. That was causing this great fear inside of them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a gym before. Um, If you go to the gym uh, you, you work out, and then afterwards, you go into the locker room to change. And when you go into the locker room, you have no shame. No matter how bad you, you smell, no matter how, how sweaty you are, you're completely okay because everyone else is just smelling as bad and they're as sweaty as you, right? So you feel completely fine. But have you ever walked in a, in, in a room where everyone is clean, nice, and you're the only one who's dirty? Like, just imagine after a workout, you're going to a wedding, and everyone is, is, has their best clothes, they're smelling nice, and you're there. Like, like the whole wedding, all you're thinking about is, man, this is, this is, this, this is terrible. Like, I, I wonder if people are going to recognize my filthiness. I wonder if people are going to smell all this scent, my body odor. And, and the reason why sinful people tremble at the holy presence of God is because God is so holy that they become more aware of their sinfulness. It's, it's not that God is just trying to scare you and terrify you. It is a scary thought to stand before a good God when you are not that good. It is a scary thought to stand before a holy God when you are not that holy. It is a scary thought to stand before a just God when you are actually sinful. And so the, the angel appears, the, the shepherds, they, they fall into great fear. But here's the good news. It says in verse 10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So what is this good news that brings great joy? What is this good news that can transform great fear into great joy? Like, what is this good news that's available for all people? It says in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, we can spend a whole sermon just on that, that one sentence right there. But three things that the angel says about Jesus, that he is the Christ. He is the promised one. He's the one that you've been waiting for. He's the one that's going to come and, and make a difference in your life. Number two is that he is the Lord. 
that he has authority over your life, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he is the one that deserves your service. But the third thing that he says is that he is he's the savior. And what that means is this, that you need to be saved. That you need to be saved and I need to be saved. Now, this is a season where we, we give and exchange presents. Um, I, I've been to the college uh, white elephant exchange, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was quite entertaining. Uh, it had some people bring, um, uh, like, laundry uh, pods, and, and there's some people brought some nice uh, uh, lotion and different things. Imagine it's your birthday, and someone brings a present, and you open it up, and it's mouthwash. Like, would you be like, whoa, I'm so thankful that someone got me mouthwash? You got to be like, this is a joke. Uh, you're trying to offend me. Or like someone brings like deodorant. Like, and it's like, like, this is what you need for your birthday. Like, uh, one, one present that I, I, I refuse to use is eye cream. Uh, my mom got me ice cream, and, and I refuse to use it to this day. Why? Because every time I use ice cream, it makes me feel old, right? I'm, 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 I'm to the point where not only I have to take care of my skin, I have to take care of my wrinkles, right? I could, and, and, and so just the thoughts of, 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 of aging is like so terrifying. Every time it reminds me that, okay, I ain't young anymore. You know, there are some gifts that require you to be humble, that you have to accept them. Like if you, if you don't put on eye cream, like the more wrinkles that you're going to have, there are some gifts that, 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 that require you to recognize that you actually have a problem that you need to address. I think the reason why people don't rejoice in the gift of Jesus is because they are highly offended by this gift. Because the meaning of this gift is this, that you are actually a sinner in need of a Savior. And they are highly offended by that. That they don't want to acknowledge that they're that filthy and dirty and and fallen and broken, and they don't want to acknowledge that they have all the problems and in the world, and 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 they don't want to acknowledge that. But I'm telling you, you need this gift. Like, it's not a matter of body order. It's not a matter of just your breath. What God says is this: I'm going to give you a gift that's going to address the biggest problem that you have in your life, and that is the problem of sin and its consequences. When you read the Bible, you realize that God, he didn't send uh, economists because our biggest problem is not the economy. He didn't send an entertainer because our biggest problem is not boredom. He didn't send a simple teacher because our biggest problem is not a lack of knowledge. He didn't send a climatologist because our biggest problem is not global warming. All these problems are real, but he sent a savior because our biggest problem problem in life is our sin and its consequences without dealing with this problem of sin that we are forever enemies with God we are we are um, lost in our sin that we do not have access to all the goodness and the favor of God and that is a problem and so receive this gift but with humility it requires you to be humble actually requires you to recognize that I am a sinner in need of a savior. The people who can rejoice truly on Christmas say are the people who recognize the depths of their sin. Before grace can be sweet, sin has to be bitter in your mouth and in your life to realize the perfect gift of our Lord and Savior. But notice in verse 13, 
And suddenly, now it's not just one angel, but he, he brings his friends. There's a multitude of angels in the heavenly hosts to remind you the weight of this situation. All these angels are praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, if you study the Old Testament, whenever the word peace is mentioned, it's not just talking about a state where you are uh, kind of in this quiet zone or trouble-free, that, that your, your life is kind of smooth. That's not what peace is symbolizing in the Old Testament. When you're talking about peace in the Old Testament, it's a relational term. You are in peace in your relationship with someone. That's, that's what the Bible is getting to. And so when it says there's Peace on earth, it's not just talking about this, this stillness or quietness. It's saying that you are relationally in peace with someone. And who is that someone? It's God. We just said that in our sin, we were enemies of God. But when you believe in Jesus, what happens is you, you are no longer enemies of God. But the Bible tells us that God calls you sons and daughters. He doesn't look at you in your filthiness, in your sinfulness, but he sees Christ's righteousness covering you. The blood of Christ is, is covering your sin, your faults. And because Christ paid the ultimate price, because he was the perfect one-time Savior for all, that you, that, that, that you can trust him and believe in him. When he sees you, the Bible says he is well-pleased. It says the glory to God in the highest and earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. So the people who receive this peace are not people in general. It's not just the earth in general, but the Bible says the people who receive this peace are people who God is well-pleased with. How in the world can you be well-pleased with God? It's only through one person, Jesus Christ. He is the one who fulfilled every law. He is the one who lived the perfect life, who fulfilled the righteous requirement of our sins. And through him, God says, I am pleased with you. It's interesting that the shepherds were the first people who heard the good news. Uh, it, it wasn't the, the people who were high in position, but these shepherds, they were uneducated. They were marginalized. They were insignificant. They were the people who were not high in the social class, and yet God appears to these group of shepherds to remind you that God not only is willing to give the good news to everyone, but he wants the nobodies to share this good news with everybody. Like, God tells these shepherds of this good news, and he says, go share it. Not only just enjoy it, but go be a messenger for Joseph and Mary. And they go, and they share the good news. And I love the response that they initially gave in verse 15. It says this, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Let's go to Bethlehem. Immediately, they're thinking, hey, let's pack our bags. Let's, 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 let's go. Let's check it out. I, I wish more people would actually do this when they hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That at least they would say, let's go check it out. Like, if it's this big of a deal. If you have a Savior that is going to solve all your problems, that, that if he's the one that God has promised this whole time in history, if he's the one who can take care of your sin, if he's the one who can make you right and make you a child of God, at least check him out. That's what the Bible is saying. And when the shepherds went and checked him out, they're like, okay, this is it. Like, he's it. And he tells, they tell the, the, the parents, Mary and Joseph, like, this is what the Lord told us. This is what the angel told us. And he's it. He's the Savior. 
It says in verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things and pondering them in her heart. So she is like blown away by this. But it says in verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So after you check it out, you ponder upon this this message. You cherish it in your heart. You treasure it in your heart. And then you share it. The shepherds were willing to share this good news, and they were willing to live a life of obedience and worship, glorifying and praising God. That's exactly what they did. So how do you respond to the message of Christmas? How can you have this joy? Now, there's an interesting story in Matthew 2, because when King Herod, he saw, sorry, and he heard the, the, all, all that was going on, he, he questions the religious leaders, and he asks a question. So what's going on? And the high priests, the religious leaders, they're able to quote Micah 5.2. They say, well, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So they know scripture. They know exactly the promise, what, what the plan is, and how God is going to fill this promise. And you know what the Bible says? How they respond to that promise? They didn't do anything. They didn't move. They knew the Savior was going to be born in Bethlehem, yet they heard and they were aware of all that was going on, and yet... They were unwilling to move from where they were. The shepherds, on the other hand, the moment they heard the good news, they were on the move. Let's go check it out. You know, the night where Jesus was born, um, we have this kind of this picture, this strange picture in our head where there is this busy town, and then Mary and Joseph knocking every door, saying, hey, I'm about to deliver a baby. Come on, help me, please. You know, and the people are like so cold, like slamming the door. No, no, no. And then you have this innkeeper who's always the mean guy. Like, if you're a Christmas play and you become the, mean keep, the innkeeper, you know that something's wrong about your reputation, right? Because the innkeeper is supposed to be the most cold-hearted man to look at this pregnant woman and say, no, we have no room for you. But the, the, the word in, in verse 7, um, a lot of scholars, they believe that that wasn't an official hotel, but it was more like a guest house. Because uh, if you go to, uh, in first century Judea, what happened was the first level, normally there was uh, the space for the animals and, and uh, kind of almost like a garage for us. Like you have animals there. And then the second floor on top, you would have um, a place where you'd live. And then most houses would have a guest house where they would host different people. Remember that this is a busy time, that there's a census going on. Like people have to go and register in their hometown. So Bethlehem, the small town, is full of people. So every house is full of guests. And that's, it makes sense now, right? Because you have relatives and people who travel from far. And so every house is packed. And so there is no room. And so it's, it wasn't that these people were just mean. They were just simply living lives. They were enjoying time with family. And in, and in that reality, there was no room for Jesus and in this Christmas season, maybe some of you guys are gathering with family, with friends. Uh, maybe your house is full of, of, of people and, and, and food. But it would be a sad thing if our, if our homes are packed with people, but if there's no room for Jesus. The Bible tells us that even if your life is packed with stuff, that your life is full of stuff and they're so busy that you don't have time for Jesus, you have to make room for Jesus. Like that's what the Bible is telling you because he is worth it. He is the savior of the world, that he came to restore the joy in your heart, that you don't have to somehow force joy out of your heart, but he brings true joy 
because he reminds you that God is in complete control, sovereign, and he reminds you that he has saving grace for all. So respond to him with humility. Check him out and share the good news with others. Amen? Let's pray.